Einstein said that uh, uh, great spirits always face violent opposition from mediocre minds. Uh, I think that's always a uh, motto to keep in mind when talking about these kinds of issues. Uh, now, what we've got this afternoon, however, is not mediocre minds. We've got great minds. Um, and we're going to bring them to bear on a question that uh, has come up a couple times in our discussion. Uh, and if you like, has been the missing piece of the puzzle. And that is we've talked about the technologies involved with this. We've talked about the political policies uh, and, and, and strategies in which to, in which to push uh, the idea of the importance of alternate fuels, of future fuels. And now I think it's time to talk about the nuts and bolts of how you go about uh, creating the kind of uh, commercially viable and the kind of feas uh, uh, commercially feasible um, system by which these kinds of uh, these kinds of future fuels can reach consumers uh, and to build the kind of grassroots bottoms up support for this as a as part of the America's new energy and transportation mix. Um, this is a group who I think in many ways uh, kind of uh, exemplifies the sort of talent, the sort of ability that this area has drawn, uh, this kind of technology and this kind of work. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward very much to hearing from them and seeing what, uh, seeing what they have to say. And I'm also looking forward very much to getting response from the audience to the main points that they, that they raise. The topic is creating what I, a common market in, in future fuels. By common market here, I'm referring, thinking about it not in, terms, not in European terms of a common market, but rather a common market in terms of a competitive market. What will it take to create a market in which you have a level, a level playing field between gasoline-driven uh, between uh, fuels that uh, of gasoline and diesel uh, intermingling then with uh, fuels uh, that are derived from uh, other kinds of sources that would be part of the transportation system. This is what I hope our panel will address. Uh, members of our panel include John Eichberger, Vice President, Government Relations, National Association of Convenience Stores Owners, Greg Dolan, who's CEO of the Methanol Institute, and also Michael Jackson, Director of Research for the Fuel Freedom Foundation. And I'll ask him to sort of finish up and talk about this discussion. I'm hoping that David Carey is going to put in an appearance in here because we were very much looking forward to, having, to hearing from him on this topic. So maybe we'll have him at the, have him at the end. We'll see what happens. Anyway, um, gentlemen, starting with John. Thank you, Arthur. You know, I've uh, never been in a room where my name was used so often without an expletive in front of it. Um, so this morning was kind of humbling. But I, to make sure I channel my wife, it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with the fact that there's a recognition that retail market development is so critical to the development of future market opportunities. And so often we talk about future fuels, we don't think about the retail market and what it really takes to deliver these products to the customer. We talk about the technology they can run on it, the fuel specs that need to be used and optimized for the engines. But if it, the customer can't access it, it doesn't make a lick of difference. So what I want to do is spend a little time talking about the retail perspective, 
retail uh, economy, what goes into the retailer's mind when they're thinking about it. <clears throat> and I'm actually going to take a departure from my normal path, and I'm going to do a small case study. So the Fuels Institute, which is a think tank that Nats launched a couple years ago that I'm running, did a study on E85 last year. And so I'm going to use that as an example of some of the elements that uh, retailers will look at when they're thinking about whether to go into a new fuel. I think the critical element is first is to understand what the market is about. And sorry that's a little dark up there, but there's about 150, 155,000 fuel retailers. Convenience stores run about 128,000 fuel outlets, and they sell about 80 to 85 percent of the gasoline in the country. Now, you drive around the country, you see a lot of major oil company signage. And about 50 percent of stores are branded, but 98 to 99 percent are independently owned and operated. The refining industry is divesting out of retail. They still have a brand present on the street. They don't own those stores. They have some contractual obligations, and the retailers do too, but they're owned and operated by independent retailers. And you think, look up here, this number over here is kind of dark. That's 58%. 58% of the convenience stores that sell fuel are one-store companies. They are true mom and pops. When we start thinking about cost of investment, these companies do not have a lot of capital to invest in new technology or new fuels, new systems, unless they know they're going to get a return on investment. And then you go around, and the 500-plus stores, 17% market share. When we started thinking about new fuels, I really think the growth opportunity is right here. Whoops, it's the 50 to two, 51 to 200 store model. <clears throat> this is typically a more nimble company. They have economies of scale, so they can take some chances and make investments in new stuff but they don't have typically the bureaucratic situation that's going to limit their ability to take a risk. So they're more open to doing some things like that. But let's take a look at economics. So the industry in 2014, these are brand new numbers, 69% of a convenience store's sales is from the fuel island. So 69% of their gross sales is fuel related. Yet only 39% of their pre-tax profit is fuel. And that was a great year. 39% was a big number. It used to be in the 25 range. So fuel is a driver to get customers to the store. About 30% of your fuel customers go inside the store and buy something else. So getting customers to your store is critical. When we start thinking about what other fuels you might want to offer, you've got to think about how many customers want to buy that product and how are going to come to my store if I offer it. And can I convert them to an intro customer where I'm making 60%, used to be 70% of my profit. And let's think about margins. <clears throat> Last year was a great year. Gross margins, not profit. This is gross margins. This is what I sold it for minus what I bought it for. You've got to take out all your cost of operations, your credit card fees, and all that stuff. But 22.3 cents per gallon was the average margin in 2014. And look at that compared to previous years. Far and away, one of our best years, and I've been with NAC since 2000, without a doubt, the best year we've had in the 14, 15 years I've been there. And that's because we had that dramatic drop in price. Retailers make money when prices go down. They lose money when prices go up. People think the opposite. They think when high prices are there, they're making money. My members make money every time that price goes down because competition doesn't require them to match the declining price at a quick rate. So they can hold on and regain some margins. When prices are going up, competition dictates they don't pass through increases faster than their competitors do. And so they're playing a game of chicken. How fast can I increase my prices to cover my costs? And they lose margin on the way up. So last year was a great year, but it's still 22 cents per gallon. Take costs out of there. It's really about six, seven cents profit per gallon. It is not a huge profit margin market. 
it used to be two to three cents. We've always said, if you can make a nickel profit on a gallon of gas, you're doing great. You're having a good year. And I think every retailer would tell you the same. <clears throat> so let's think about a couple things here. The Model T came out 107 years ago. In 107 years, how much progress have we made? It ran on gasoline. 98% of this industry, of the vehicles on the road, run on gasoline or diesel fuel. Mixes of the various, but their primary fuel is petroleum. So when we start thinking about how do we bring new products to market and how fast can we bring them, we have to be realistic here. The turnover of the fleet takes time. And getting consumers to adopt a new technology or new fuel for their vehicles is going to take some time. It's the second largest investment any consumer is going to make, second only to their house. And some people, that car costs more than the house. Um, so you have to make, keep that in mind, that change takes time. <clears throat> so how long will it take us to change the new fuel? In 2013, the Fuels Institute contracted Navigant Research to do a forecast of the vehicle car park. So this is vehicle registrations. <clears throat> and it goes from 2012 on the bottom to 2023 on the top. This, the orange here is gasoline internal combustion engines, and the yellow is flex fuel vehicles. I have them next to each other because, as we saw earlier, the majority of flex fuel drivers do not use E85. They use gasoline. But if we look at this, <clears throat> 2012, <clears throat> the combination of gasoline and flex fuel with 98% market share. By 2022, 23, we're expecting it to drop down to 92. Now, that's not a huge drop. If you look at the gasoline only from 93 to 83, there is an erosion in market share for the gasoline-dominant market, but it is a slow erosion. The greatest growth we're seeing here is in diesel. Again, it's a fuel people are, are comfortable with. It doesn't require any new mindset or any new change of behavior. We start talking about electric vehicles, you're asking the customer to completely change the way they power their vehicle. And so when we start thinking about this, look at the opportunities and what is the market there. When we start talking about high-octane fuels, the market's really going to be right in this sweet spot and through here. But how much? So flex fuel vehicles, 17 million of them on the, on the road, they're about 6 7% of the market. The, only, the most rosy forecasts I've seen take them up to maybe 10% of the market. And we had the discussion earlier about what's going to happen with the change in CAFE credits. Are we going to lose the production of flex fuel vehicles going forward? If that's the case, that market share goes down. So now we start thinking about anything above E10 or E15 for certain vehicles, who can buy it? The number of customers who can buy it may go down. So as a retailer, I'm thinking, what's my potential market for selling a new product? Who are my customers and what's their... Uh, likelihood they're going to buy the new fuel. So with that, let's look at E85. <clears throat> what we did at the Fuels Institute is we went out to retailers that we knew sold E85, and we asked them, would you be willing to share with us your daily sales data? We want volume, price, and margins for E85 and unleaded fuel so we can run a comparison. <clears throat> 200 stores gave us data for 18 months. We had half a million to a million lines of data. But we had those metrics, and that's what, this, that's what powered the study. The study was designed to say, not should I get into it, what will it cost me to sell E85, but if I do make the investment to sell E85, how much money can I make? How much fuel can I sell? And so let's take a look at some of those numbers. First of all, we talked about stations, and there's a lot of reports out there. Uh, RFA is in a big uh, uh, fight with the Department of Energy and their alternative fuel data center about how many stations are in the market. So I took all the numbers together, AFDC, Growth Energy, and RFA, and we're looking somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,700 to 3,300 stations in the United States sell E85 out of 150,000 gasoline retail locations. 
the uptick has been 14% growth annually. But that is not a big number. And so, as we said before, if you're going to be producing flex fuel vehicles and trying to bring E85 or a flex fuel to market, <clears throat> if the stations aren't going to sell them, sell that fuel, you're not going to get any market penetration. So why are retailers not selling E85? Well, I mentioned before the number of flex fuel vehicles in the market, 6 7% of the market, and that's just – uh, in 2014. Now, this number comes from growth energy that they pulled from Polk. And I had a couple of people last week ask me, why is this big jump here? I don't know. I'm not from Polk. I can't justify what that jump is. But we do know we're about 17.5 million flex fuel vehicles in the market. <clears throat> As a retailer, if only 6 or 7% of my customers can sell a fuel that may require me to install a new tank or replace a fuel in my system and put in a higher degree of compatibility uh, dispenser that may cost me more, I'm going to think real hard about whether or not I can generate enough sales from that 6% potential customer pool to justify the investment. So the questions I have as a retailer, how many tanks do I have? If I'm, if I'm operating a two-tank configuration, I means I have a premium tank and a regular tank, and I'm blending mid-grade. In order to accommodate E85, I have to replace something. I have to replace my premium tank or my regular tank if I'm a little more uh, uh, dangerous-minded in terms of my long-term sustainability. But if I'm going to replace a tank, that means I'm going to give up two grades of fuel. I'm going to give up mid-grade and premium. If I have three tanks, maybe I can make the adjustment more carefully and more effectively and efficiently without replacing any of my gasoline grades. I can put E85 in a tank, and that also gives me the ability to maybe blend down some mid-level blends we've been talking about today. <clears throat> so that's one question. But if I have to put in a new tank, we're looking at six figures, hundred dollars to $150,000 to put in a new tank. California could be $200,000 $250,000 because of the tank tightness testing requirements. That's a big investment, especially if you're only making $40,000 per station per year. And that's the pre-tax profit we've seen in the last couple of years. Are my dispensers compatible? You know, E85 has been in the market a long time. UL never certified an E85 dispenser until 2010. That means that every dispenser in the market prior to 2010 that's selling E85 was doing so in violation of federal law. Federal law requires testing by a nationally recognized testing laboratory. Certification wasn't listed until 2010. That doesn't mean things are wrong with it. doesn't mean there's any risk. doesn't mean they're going to leak or anything like that. But legal requirements right, has to be listed. And so are my dispensers compatible? And if they're not, is there an upgrade kit or do I have to replace them? Last time I checked, Gabarco and Wayne were charging about six to $8,000 more for an E85 compatible dispenser compared to an E10 regulated dispenser. So there is an increase in that. Are my tanks and lines underground compatible? Most likely they are. But they have to be listed. You have to know what you have on the ground, and that may not be always uh, possible. Who's going to supply you? I have a guy down in North Texas who has an E85 station. And he says, John, I don't sell anything. It sit there. I dust it. That's what I do. And so we were at a fuels institute, and one of the guys from the ethanol industry came over and said, well, what's your price? He said, I can't get it for a price to move it. So what's your supplier? He said, I can get you a supplier from Nebraska to North Texas and save you 50 cents a gallon. It all depends on how can, you how can you supply product. And if you can supply product in a cost-effective way, maybe it makes sense to go into this market. Um, are you restricted by a branded contract? It said 50% of the stations in the country are branded by the refiner supplier. There are restrictions on what you can sell. Now, in 2007, the Energy Act, we actually changed the Petroleum Marketing Practices Act to allow E85 to be sold under the canopy of a branded supplier as long as you make it clear it is not the product of that branded supplier. But it's only for future contracts. It does not abrogate existing contracts, so there are restrictions there. But for the 50% of unbranded guys, they still have not run to the E85 market. 
So people say, but John, it's the branded contracts are preventing the introduction of this product. 75,000 stations in the country do not have brand restrictions, yet only 3,000 stations sell E85. So there's other business reasons going into preventing this. <clears throat> what kind of marketing support might you receive from the ethanol industry and your suppliers? And what kind of ROI might you expect or critical elements? So let's take a look at ROI a little bit. <clears throat> so the 200 stations that gave us daily sales data, I started asking questions. I looked at it. So some stations said we sold 2,500 gallons of E85. We sold 5,000. And I asked, is that a lot? Heck, I don't know. It depends on how many gallons of product you sell. Now, what's your percent of volume? So I compared it to E85 sales compared to unleaded sales, kind of as a proxy for conversion of your flex fuel customers. And what we found is of those stores, they averaged about 2.8%. E85 sales equaled 2.8% of their unleaded sales. That may not be enough to encourage somebody to move into E85. But then I started asking questions, okay, is that representative of the best operators? Are they doing something different? So I isolated the 200 stores, <clears throat> said of those 200 stores, what are the 10 who sold the most average E85 per month, and what did they do? And this is what we found. Based upon discount, so you have a zero discount from E85 to unleaded all the way up to $1.20, and then the percent of unleaded sales represented by E85 sales. The top 10 stores averaged 50 cents below unleaded, and keep in mind, unleaded this time is about $3.50 a gallon, and that equaled about 6.2% of unleaded sales. Now, we know E85 delivers fewer miles per gallon. On a BTU-adjusted basis, it's somewhere around 25%. And so the economists in the room will say, we need to be 25% below unleaded. That doesn't pan out. Consumers aren't making an economic calculation on percentage. If you're selling gasoline for $3.50 and you're selling E85 for 3 bucks, flex fuel customers may shift. And if you have 7% of your customer pool drives flex fuels and you're getting a 6 to 7% bump a percentage share of E85 to unleaded, maybe you've been able to convince those customers to switch. And so that might be an incentive for you to move forward into E85 because that shows some market potential. <clears throat> so you have an idea of what you might sell gallon-wise. What kind of profit are you going to make? And this chart here is basically to talk about how does E85 stack against some other uh, products, especially if you have a two-tank configuration, you have to abandon something. So the yellow line is E85 gross margins. And I extrapolated that to the month based upon the average sales. E85 was delivering from those stores about $800 a month in pre-tax profit. Mid-grade and premium were delivering $1,200 a month, and diesel was delivering $4,200 a month. Like diesel is obscene in terms of its margins. $0.75 cents per gallon margins last year sometimes. Wonderful product for retailers to sell. They love it. Um, but E85, when it was... Able to be offset by RIN values in June, July of 2013, it actually delivered $2,800 in pre-tax margin. Nice return. So the question is, can you generate enough sales and generate enough margin to make the investment in E85 worth your, your effort? <clears throat> so I went through the E85 because I wanted to use an example, and I had some, some real data. But when we start talking about some of the other products, same considerations come into play. E15. How many of my customers can run on E15? According to Renewable Fuels Association, 83% of cars on the road are 2001 or newer, so EPA says you can use them. The auto industry does not agree. I've seen a couple charts that show where the auto industry warranties vehicles for E15, and even the 2015 models are not all approved for E15. More and more are, but there are limitations. So you have to think about who can sell it or who can use it. Then you think, are my, is my equipment compatible? Can I sell it during the summer months, unless the RVP 
ex exemption is extended, you're not going to be able to. So you have to think about what's my tank configuration. How do I supply E15? All these things come into consideration. High-octane fuel, I mentioned earlier, and I asked Brian about E25, because the dispenser manufacturer are producing dispensers that are warranted to 25% ethanol. If you go to 30% ethanol, we're going to have to move into E85 compatible infrastructure, which is much more expensive. So if we want to have a partnership where the autos are optimizing engines, we're producing a fuel that has a high octane value, and the retail conversion is low barrier to entry, keeping it below 25% ethanol concentration is going to be very critical because a lot of the equipment being put into play now is 25% compatible. We have some regulatory hurdles to overcome in terms of the appropriate listing of those dispensers, but the warranty from the manufacturer gives us a lot of flexibility, a lot of power to influence regulators. Natural gas as a regular fuel is $1.5 million per uh, location to do it right. <clears throat> nice thing about natural gas is it gives you on a gasoline gallon equivalency, it's half the price of gasoline at retail. So when gasoline was three fifty, you could sell natural gas for a buck fifty, buck seventy-five, buck twenty-five, and the retailer margin on it is about three or four times higher than that on gasoline. So if you can get a fleet to agree to bring their natural gas vehicles to your station, you can actually generate a return on investment calculation fairly easily once you get in place and you recruit more fleets. So one of the chairman of NACS is at a quick trip out of Wisconsin. They're converted their entire 50% of their distribution fleet themselves is now natural gas. So they're installing a natural gas refueling infrastructure that is supported by their fleet. And while they do that, they're going out and recruiting other fleets to convert to natural gas, and they're making a pretty good business investment on that. Hydrogen, long term, we've got a long way to go before we have hydrogen as a uh, widespread fuel. But from a retail perspective, it makes a lot of sense because the consumer cannot re it's an electric vehicle that's independent of the grid. The, elect the consumer cannot recharge with the hydrogen at home. They can recharge electricity at home, but they cannot put hydrogen reformers in their home. Hydrogen refueling infrastructure uh, experience is three to five minutes, three to 400 mile range, a lot like we see with gasoline and diesel. So from a retail perspective, it's about $2 million per site right now. It's all government uh, supported for the most part. But there, there is a model to make a return on investment argument for hydrogen, and it helps address a lot of the environmental issues and performance requirements of the auto industry. Electric recharging, I've told my guys at NACS, I don't think it is a threat or an opportunity at this point. Most consumers, about 90% of consumers, drive 40 miles or less a day. The typical electric vehicle has a 40-mile, 50-mile range, so that's the customer. That's the target customer. That customer can recharge at home, maybe get a top-off at the office, how often does a 20-mile one-way commuter have to stop at a convenience store for any reason other than to buy gas? So if they're recharging at home or at work, they don't need to stop at a retail station. There's a lot of PR benefit for putting in a charging station. I got a chairman of FuelSense who just put in a couple of fast charges in Indiana. Why? Because he's getting a lot of positive PR. And every single electric vehicle and plug-in vehicle has a computer that lists where all the electric charging stations are. Now he's on that. And so there's that marketing and that, that good faith effort. I'm a progressive retailer. A lot of goodwill comes from that. But in terms of where retailers are really looking, they're still looking at liquid. Liquid's going to be dominant. 97 98% of the market for the next 20 years is likely going to be liquid of some sort. Um, the forecast I see from EIA and from other organizations is maybe 4% market share for non-liquid alternatives. But even hybrids are only projected to get to 5% market share by 2040. And hybrids have been around a long time, and there's no change in behavior required by the customer. <clears throat> so, again, the questions are, do I have customers who want the fuel? How much will the equipment cost? 
Can I get a reliable competitive supply? What are the customers who can't buy the fuel buy it? So what if a 2,000 customer comes up with E15 in the car? <clears throat> what happens? Who's responsible for the Clean Air Act violation? Who's responsible for any damage to an engine? What if a 2013 car that's not warranted for E15 uses E15? You're protected from the Clean Air Act violation, but what if they damage the engine? Who's responsible then? Retailer has to think about that. And it's not necessarily a legal liability, it's brand value. If you go to your <clears throat> mechanic and say you put bad fuel, who's responsible for that? Are you going to say, well, I must have bought the wrong stuff? No, 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 no. It's that retailer over there sold me bad fuel, and I'm going to tell everybody about it. He sold me bad fuel and ruined my car. And so there's that concern they have to take. How much can I sell, and what's my ROI? How long is it going to take me to break even and make a profit? All those things have to be considered no matter what fuel we're talking about. And if we don't, aren't able to answer those questions in a way that's cost efficient, a retailer is likely going to say, thank you, but no thanks. I'm going to continue selling what 98% of my customers want me to sell. If we can answer those questions and give them a positive return on investment and give them an opportunity to expand market share, they're going to be more inclined to jump at it and give it a shot. So we need to identify these hurdles and knock them down. And I'll be happy to answer questions when the panel is completed. Thank you guys very much. Well, so far you've probably noticed that our discussion on future fuels has centered on uh, the e-fuel, ethanol. Uh, ethanol, whether it's considered in terms of a biofuel, natural gas-derived fuel. So I thought it would be interesting now to uh, bring another element into the blend, if I may use that expression here, as a, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the group we've got today. And that element is methanol. Uh, Greg Dolan, CEO of the Methanol Institute. Uh, Greg has, I think you'll find, a lot of very interesting things to say about the role, future role of methanol as an alternate fuel um, in ways that I think for any kind of serious discussion, any kind of coherent discussion of the future of future feel, fuels, uh, methanol definitely has to be has to be part of the equation. Great. Great. Thanks, Arthur. Look forward to this talk about the the other alcohol, methanol. Um, so the Methanol Institute serves as the trade association for the global methanol industry. And what I want to talk about today is a little bit about the what we're seeing as a, a reemergence of methanol globally as an energy resource, the resurgence of methanol production here in the U.S. I know Scott's a, Scott Siegel is a tough act to follow, but I'll talk a little bit about Washington policy issues, look a little bit about uh, some of the global methanol fuel work that's being done, and then I'm going to talk at the end about methanol as a marine engine fuel. So the Methanol Institute is a trade association. We have offices in Washington, Singapore, Brussels, and Beijing. We represent methanol producers, distributors, technology companies, supporting traditional chemical derivative markets, emerging energy markets, and we provide a lot of work on uh, delivering safe handling tools across the global methanol distribution chain. This is a list of our member companies, and just above Mike's head there is Fuel Freedom Foundation, so they're one of our, our important members of the Methanol Institute. So let me get right into it. When we talk about uh, what are the drivers for alternative fuels, we focus on three primary issues. One is scale. You need a feedstock base that's large enough to support a global transportation market. The next one is sustainability. 
So for the emerging alternative fuels, you've got to show that you're not just as clean as the conventional fuels, but you're cleaner. And then you also have to show that there are low and, and no carbon pathways to the fuel. And then subsidy. I mean, eventually somebody needs to be able to make money. You can't rely on government support for uh, the future. When we look at methanol, we can make methanol from many resources. We've got this large feedstock base. Most methanol is made conventionally from the steam reformation of natural gas. In China, they gasify coal to make methanol. Uh, methanol is also known as wood alcohol. There's technologies that are commercially available to uh, gasify or use pyrolysis to turn biomass into uh, methanol fuel. We just joined a, a German network, the Regenerative Methanol Network, that's looking at the development of CO2-based methanol in Germany. They've got a situation where it's an interesting problem. They've got too much electricity production. So what they can do is take some of those electrons, uh, convert uh, water through electrolysis into hydrogen, and that's one of the feedstocks for methanol, hydrogen and, and CO2. And then if you look at some of the work that's being done by the University of Southern California and uh, George Ola, Nobel Prize laureate, and his discussions of the methanol economy, uh, they're working on literally catalytically stripping CO2 from the atmosphere to use as a feedstock for methanol production. So we can hit the, feed, the large feedstock bases. We can hit sustainability. And once you have methanol, you open up all these markets, uh, chemicals, uh, plastics, paints, glues, resins, and then there's a wide range of energy markets that you can uh, meet with methanol. On the value side, we can show that over the last uh, 10 years or more, uh, methanol has shown a significant value to gasoline on an energy equivalent basis. So we can, we can make money selling methanol as a transportation fuel. Uh, now, our industry over the last decade has gone through quite a transition from a, typically a chemical commodity to now a global energy resource. So the, the light blue lines on the bottom is the chemical demand. Uh, it typically grows at GDP rate. Everything above that is these emerging energy markets. And that's where we're really seeing the global, the global uh, growth in the market. And those energy markets now represent some 45% of total methanol demand. On a global basis, we're looking at somewhere around 21 billion gallons of methanol is used for these emerging energy markets. That's direct methanol, fuel blending, diesel substitution. Uh, MTBE is still an important market for methanol. Uh, Scott Siegel mentioned that earlier as well. Uh, we still produce a lot of MTBE here in the United States. We don't use it here. We export it to Mexico, Venezuela, and uh, Europe, and the margins are actually very good. Uh, another emerging fuel is DME, dimethyl ether, which can be produced from methanol. Uh, methanol is also a great hydrogen carrier for fuel cell technologies. Uh, but the fastest growing segment of this new energy resources market is direct transportation fuel blending, which is growing at about 23% uh, a year. Now, when we look at transportation fuels, we, we sort of segmented it into three markets, passenger cars, shipping, which I'll talk about at the end, and a little bit on uh, heavy-duty vehicles, trucks and buses. That logo there for GEM fuels came from one of our member companies, Kuji, uh, in Australia. They're marketing a blend of gasoline, ethanol, and methanol together in Australia. And ethanol is a great co-solvent for methanol, so the two alcohols can play well together. Now, 
for methanol gasoline blends, there are sort of three segments of this market. There's low-level blends, and that's everything from M3, or 3% methanol and gasoline, to M15, 15% methanol, 85% gasoline. Now, the current EU fuel standard, EN228, allows you to blend up to 3% methanol and gasoline. And we're seeing uptake of that product in the UK and Netherlands and a couple of other niche markets in Europe. In China, they use a lot of M15. Uh, and now there's somewhere around 7 million metric tons of methanol a year are used in China as M15. Now, it's interesting because when you look at the, the cars that are using that fuel at M15, it's the existing fleet of passenger cars. No changes are being made to the vehicles to run an M15 fuel. And then you start further looking at the Chinese market. The domestic automakers in China, the local brands, produce less than 25% of the cars that are sold in China. So 75% of the cars that are sold are built by the international OEMs, and they're running on M15 fuels today. And again, we're seeing trials now of these fuels in Australia and Israel and other markets. Uh, M20 to M30, I'll actually call that A20 to A30, and that was talked about earlier today, using alcohol to provide a, an octane boost to the fuel pool. Um, we think methanol can help with that. Uh, methanol is about half the cost of ethanol. We can give you all the octane you need uh, at a much more affordable rate. Uh, there's an interest in this market in Europe as well. ePure, which is the ethanol trade group in Europe, has been pushing uh, for uh, E20 in Europe. And again, we're talking about A20, A20 to 30, alcohol blends together. And then there's the high-proportion fuels, and that would be methanol flex fuels or dedicated vehicles that are running on anywhere from uh, M51 to M100. Uh, Coleman Jones is here. He's chairing a task force that's updating the ASTM standard for methanol. We've been doing that for, what is it now, three, four years, something like that. We're getting close, though. We're getting close. Um, Yes, yes. Uh, in China, uh, I'll talk a little bit about that as well, but they're actually running some dedicated M100 vehicles where you really can take advantage of methanol's higher octane and have an engine that's developed to run on those high-octane fuels. Uh, on the heavy-duty side, uh, methanol is not an ideal diesel blending fuel. Uh, methanol is high octane, which is great for mixing it with gasoline, but it has a low cetane. And the cetane is a key performance measure for diesel fuels that are being used in a combustion engine. But there are ways around that, and we're seeing some of these being developed commercially today. Uh, you can blend methanol and diesel together. There are emulsifiers that are being developed commercially to allow that to happen. You can, again, take the methanol, uh, dehydrate it, and turn it into DME, and that's a great diesel fuel uh, uh, a diesel fuel replacement. I was meeting in Sweden a couple of weeks ago with Volvo, and they think DME works across their entire fleet of vehicles, and they're, they're pretty excited about it. There are dual fuel configurations. This is being done in China today where they'll run a truck on diesel fuel and have a second tank and then run it, uh, once you get up to highway loads, convert it over to methanol, and they can displace as much as 40 to 50 percent of the diesel fuel consumption with this sort of dual fuel capability. Uh, in Europe, Scania is one of the big uh, engine manufacturers. They're running buses today on what they call a ED95. It's 95% ethanol and 5% diesel. We've also shown that you can do the same thing with methanol. Those are spark ignition engines rather than compression ignition. So there are ways of using methanol uh, to substitute for diesel in the heavy-duty market. Uh, turning to the U.S. resurgence of methanol, so the shale gas revolution is leading uh, a lot more uh, interest in domestic methanol production. 
Last year, the U.S. produced some 3 million metric tons, a billion gallons of methanol. Our demand is about twice that, about 6.5 million tons. By 2014, well, actually, that should be by 2018, we could get up to as much as 28 million metric tons or over 9 billion gallons. So there's a lot of methanol production that's coming online. Uh, by probably 2016, 2017, the U.S. will again become a net exporter of methanol. And what each of these plants mean is it's an investment of billions of dollars. Each plant will create about 250 permanent high-paying jobs and will create about 2,500 construction jobs. So we're talking about investments and jobs. Uh, the little pictures there shows one of our member companies, OCI, broke ground for a plant in uh, Clear Lake Te or Beaumont, Texas. And then within a couple of days, they had a job fair, and people were lined up out the door to get these high-paying jobs. This is what some of these projects look like. Interesting, some of these uh, project announcements have come from Chinese entities that are looking to take advantage of the low-cost shale gas here, produce methanol, and then export some of that back to China to use it in their cars or to use it to make olefins, which is the backbone for the plastics industries. Uh, turning to the political side, uh, in the current Congress, we've seen uh, the introduction of the Fuel Choices and Deregulation Act. A similar bill was introduced in the last Congress. Uh, this one has been introduced by Senator Rand Paul. And what this legislation will do, amongst other things, provide a CAFE credit to automakers that introduce fuel choice enabling vehicles. Uh, fuel choice enabling vehicles are defined as something that runs on anything other than gasoline. So it's flexible fuel, and it's ethanol, methanol flex fuel vehicles, natural gas, propane, hydrogen fuel cells, plug-in electric vehicles would qualify as fuel choice enabling vehicles. The legislation would provide a credit to automakers that introduce these vehicles of 8 miles per gallon towards their 54-mile-per-gallon obligation under the CAFE credit. So it's a really significant uh, carrot for the automakers. The other legislation that we've seen introduced in past Congresses and we think will be introduced in the House in the next couple of weeks is the Open Fuel Standard Act. And that would be more of a stick, a requirement to the automakers to introduce increasing volumes of these fuel choice enabling vehicles. Now, just a, uh, I think about a week or so ago, uh, the Renewable Fuels Association and Morning Consult uh, announced the results of a poll. 69% of voters support the federal government requiring automakers to introduce something, uh, cars that can run on something other than oil. So we think that there's a real interest in the public for fuel choices at the pump. Uh, I know there's been quite a bit of discussion about the renewable fuel standard today. Uh, we've got a mandate right now to get to 36 billion gallons of renewable fuels by 2022. Finding a pathway to get to that is difficult, and really for two reasons. One, on the fuel side, um, it's hard to get the volumes of cellulosic fuel uh, that could meet those requirements uh, by 2022. The running joke in, in Washington, and I've seen this actually came from somebody in the ethanol, ethanol industry, is easier to buy a unicorn than a gallon of cellulosic ethanol. The other problem we have is, is in the vehicle tanks. As John was just talking about, you know, it's difficult to get beyond E10. We've hit that blend wall right now. We've seen little commercial interest in E15. There's some, maybe 100 stations selling E15. On the E85, um, 
again, we talked about the CAFE credits going to be expiring. Uh, I talked to the Energy Information Administration. I asked them, what's the volume of E85 that's sold in the U.S. today? Uh, and they came back and said, well, it's difficult. Nobody really measures it, but their estimate is 40 million gallons a year. And that 40 million gallons a year has been flat over the past five years. So to put that into some perspective, if we've got 3,000 E85 pumps in the U.S., you're talking about 36 gallons of E85 sold at each of those pumps a day. Uh, typical gasoline pump sells more than 500 gallons. If you look at that across maybe 18 million uh, ethanol flex fuel vehicles over a year, that's 2.2 gallons of E85 per uh, ethanol flex fuel vehicle. And typical gasoline consumption is probably more like 475 gallons per vehicle. Now, one of the things that, that we're talking about, again, Scott was going through this, that there's legislation being introduced in both the House and Senate to modify or repeal the renewable fuel standard. Uh, clearly, EPA has mismanaged the program and mismanaged it pretty grossly. Uh, we would argue that uh, if we're going to repeal and replace the renewable fuel standard, let's replace it with a domestic fuel standard. Again, that was one of the purposes for the RFS, was to stimulate a market for domestic feedstocks for alternative fuels. Well, the biggest feedstock we have is natural gas. And Ernie Moniz, when he was at MIT, chaired a study on the future of natural gas and identified methanol as the most efficient and economical fuel, liquid transportation fuel that we can make from natural gas. So let's look at something like a domestic fuel standard as we're debating in Congress uh, what to do about the future of the RFS, because clearly the 36 billion gallon target can't be met. Congress has got to do something. Not this year, probably not next, but in the near future. Uh, now looking at China, again, I mentioned there's 7 million gallons of, or 7 million tons of methanol blended uh, in China as M15. That's against uh, 105 million tons of gasoline. Uh, so in China, coal-based methanol is sort of the equivalent of corn-based ethanol here in the United States. China has standards for high-proportion methanol fuels, M85 and M100. Their Ministry of Industry and Information Technology in 2012 launched a demonstration program of these high-proportion fuels in both light and heavy-duty vehicles, and they've now expanded that program to other provinces. The goal here is to come up with uh, vehicle standards for M85 and M100 in China. They've already converted 160,000 taxis to M85 and M100. Uh, they've got thousands of pumps selling M15 and thousands of pumps selling M85. And if you put that 160,000 vehicles into some perspective, in the U.S. we've got some 140,000 uh, natural gas-fueled vehicles, 1,200 fueling stations. That's after decades of work. The Chinese have converted those vehicles in the last three years. So they're really showing that you can rapidly get into this market. The Chinese are also the largest producer of methanol and consumer of methanol. Uh, their production went from roughly 3 million tons in 2005 to more than 70 million tons today. Uh, so they've shown that you can rapidly increase the volume of methanol coming into the market. Uh, the image down there on the bottom is uh, the chairman of Geely Automotive Group. Uh, they also own Volvo. Uh, he's been introducing methanol-fueled vehicles. They recently broke ground on a manufacturing plant in Shanxi province that will produce 250,000 methanol-fueled cars per year. The picture above that shows an M15 truck loading in Shanxi province. 
they've now got terminal blending stations that are capable of moving hundreds of thousands of tons per year of methanol into the fuel pool in China. And this is all being driven by economics. The wholesale cost of methanol in China is like one-third that of gasoline. So it's really being driven because they're making a lot of money. Those taxi drivers running on methanol today are putting a third more, more money in their pocket every month by running on methanol fuel. A couple of other markets. Um, boom, 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 maybe. There we go. Uh, rally racing. So the past three years now, we've been sponsoring the use of these gem fuels, gasoline, ethanol, methanol blends, and rally cars in Europe. Uh, we've had, over the past two years, 10 race events, consumed 38,000 liters of gem fuels, and we've saved 66,000 kilograms of CO2. Now, the methanol component here is produced by Carbon Recycling International. They call it Vulcanol. It's a pure renewable methanol that's made from waste CO2 from a geothermal power plant and the electrolysis of water from that same plant combined to make a, a pure renewable methanol. Australia, uh, again, our member Kuji is working on these gem fuels. I've been with them, and we've done road shows across Australia talking about the, the interest in these blends in, in the Australian market. The Australian government has taken the lead. They've got uh, methanol excise tax-free for 10 years. So that's a significant incentive, and that's something that government has done to really stimulate the market. We're expecting to see a commercial rollout of GEM-8 fuels in the next couple of months. That's a blend of 5% methanol and 3% ethanol. Israel has found a lot of natural gas. They're looking at converting some of that natural gas to methanol to put in their fuel pool. The prime minister has established a fuel choices initiative. Uh, they're now demonstrating M15 and M70 vehicles. Uh, we also work closely with a chemical company in Israel, Door Chemical. Uh, that's not only doing work on these fuels for vehicles, but they're also running a 50-megawatt power plant today on methanol. They're running industrial boilers on methanol. So there are a lot of these emerging energy markets that uh, we're seeing developed around the world. Now I want to just uh, transition a little bit and talk about methanol as a marine engine fuel. Now, first off, bunker fuel has historically been used in the global shipping industry. Uh, 90,000 ships consuming some 350, 370 million tons of heavy fuel oil. This uh, is a highly polluting fuel. It's sort of a, the heavier, the worst component of a fuel blend. High in SOx, NOx, particulate emissions. This is changing. The Interna International Maritime Organization has adopted regulations that are first reducing SOx emissions and then we'll address uh, NOx. This has been picked up by uh, what's referred to as emission control areas. Uh, North America's one. Uh, if you come within 200 miles of the U.S. coast today, you have to be using a low SOx fuel. Uh, by 2016, uh, the new regulations go into effect here in the U.S. for NOx. Any keels late after 2016, those ships, if they're coming into the U.S. ports, they have to have compatibility with low NOx emissions. European market has the SOX requirements for the North Sea and the Baltic. And there are limited uh, options for complying with these, remission, with these uh, emission requirements. And one is uh, using methanol in a dual fuel configuration with diesel. Uh, just last week, uh, Stena, which is one of Europe's largest ferry company operators, uh, relaunched the Germanica. It has a methanol-fueled engine. It's actually the world's largest methanol-fueled engine today. This ship has four of these engines. Each of them is about three stories tall. 
uh, and it's now running on clean burning methanol. One of our member companies, Methanex, they have a shipping company that has ordered seven new vessels powered by methanol dual fuel engines produced by MAN. The Germanica uh, engines were produced by Wurzilla. So those two are some of the main engine manufacturers in the marine sector. They now offer commercially methanol-fueled ships. We're also working now with the Methaship project uh, in Germany, uh, where we're looking at designing a cruise ship and a Ropax ferry over the next three years that will be methanol-fueled. One of our competitors in this market is LNG. Uh, there are some 50 to 60 ships already in the world's oceans that are using LNG as a bunker fuel. Methanol is a cargo. Uh, it's not considered as a fuel today, but that's, that's changing. One of the reasons it's changing is purely economics. The shipping industry is very price sensitive, particularly on fuel costs. The cost to convert a ship to run on methanol is one-third that of the conversion cost for LNG. Uh, methanol can be easily stored at any port in the world. I was in uh, Gothenburg, Sweden, a couple of weeks ago, where that Stena Germanica uh, goes from Gothenburg to, uh, uh, into Germany. And the fueling infrastructure that they use is very simple. They've got a, a simple container, like a tractor-trailer container, that's a pump room that sits next to the ship. They pull up methanol tanker trucks and literally just transfer the ship, the, the methanol from the tanker truck onto the ship. The infrastructure costs them probably less than a million euros. If you were to look at doing that same kind of fueling infrastructure for LNG, you're probably talking 20 to 30 million euros. And that infrastructure can easily grow as the market for the marine sector grows. So we think there's a real opportunity for methanol uh, in this market. So in conclusion, um, I said, even though we've got inconsistent public policy here in the U.S. and Europe and other markets around the world, we think methanol fuels will succeed because, again, we've got a long uh, list of feedstocks. Uh, we can make methanol from long-term sustainable fuels. Uh, there are no real technical barriers to using methanols as a transportation fuel, and we do think that somebody can make money. We think there will be significant economic benefits to using methanol as a fuel. So with that, I uh, thank you. Thank you, Greg. Um, our final speaker, uh, whose name is a household name, someone told me there's a singer with the same name that you have, like something that. like that, somebody from, from distant past. Anyway, um, Michael is with the is director of research at the Fuel Freedom uh, Foundation. Uh, full disclosure, uh, Fuel Freedom Foundation has been supportive of this conference and the work that we've been doing here. Uh, I think I asked Michael to, to bat cleanup because what I'm hoping he'll do is to give us not only a discussion about the role of uh, natural gas-derived um, fuels and what their future looks like, but also maybe give us a kind of overview of, of how this discussion has gone today, this morning, uh, during lunch and this afternoon. Uh, and give us a kind of uh, a broader picture from, from his perspective as to where all this is going uh, and what, what work still has to be done. Michael. Thank you, Arthur. There are a couple advantages of going last. Um, one is what you just said. I get to comment on everybody else's comments. Um, 
The disadvantage is that maybe you guys are going to fall asleep on this part, but hopefully that won't happen. So what I want to do is talk about uh, how you can get fuel competition at the pump. And let's see if I can figure this out. So we've heard a little bit this morning uh, about the fact that there's a, a substantial change that has occurred in the last four or five years on U.S. energy supply. And that change really opens the opportunity to rethink how we can get fuels from natural gas into the transportation market. 2004 or so, when I was doing these analysis in California, you know, natural gas was dead. There wasn't enough natural gas to be really thinking about putting it in the transportation market. Sure, we could put it in some niche markets, but to put it in the light duty market was dead on arrival. They're just, the supply issue was not there. Today, that's completely changed. Um, so we can start thinking about natural gas-derived fuels, like ethanol and methanol. Methanol, um, I worked on methanol in the 80s. It's been, it was successfully demonstrated. I'll show you a couple of examples of that uh, in the 90s. Um, ethanol has also been in the market today, but albeit at, at least at, at E85, very low volume. So I want to comment a little bit about that and what that all means. So let me briefly go through and talk a little bit about the price differential between natural gas and petroleum today and what opportunity that provides for natural gas pathways. I want to give you a little bit of, uh, of background on Fuel Freedom Foundation. I want to talk about the possible pathways, which will put some of these technologies in perspective. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the vehicle technologies that you would need in order to bring these technologies to the marketplace. I'm going to follow that up by really stressing what are the successful factors that are needed for a fuel and vehicle combination to go in the marketplace. Um, and then follow that by a, by a summary. So let me start. Fuel Freedom, a nonpartisan initiative initiated to reduce U.S. dependence on petroleum. It's a good thing. Initiate changes necessary for all these fuels to compete in the marketplace. So overcome whatever regulatory, commercial, or practical barriers that impede the innovation in fuel production, consumption, and true market competition. That's the goal of Fuel Freedom Foundation. This chart shows how natural gas has been decoupled from petroleum. So left-hand side is history. We all sort of know that. Right-hand side is projections. This is reference case, AEO, um, uh, annual energy outlook for 2015, reference case. Not the high, not the low, just a reference case. Um, the big peak we saw in 2012 or so, the delta between oil and natural gas, six times. And we're typically along there, it's a 3x number. This is on dollars per million BTU differences. So there's, you can see there's a big opportunity there to potentially take the natural gas, convert it to, say, a liquid fuel, and then compete with gasoline, provided all the conversion factors in terms of production, distribution, and everything else work out, okay? And I've shown a couple arrows there. There's obviously upward pressure from the demand from developing countries. There's slightly downward pressure because we're, we're improving our fuel economy every year. 
there's downward pressure just because there's a lot of gas that can't get to the market on the gas side. So, but there are also other opportunities here. This is, people are now thinking about taking that natural gas and selling it as LNG. Well, what's LNG priced at in the marketplace? Close to those petroleum prices. So you could see where there would be a reasonable market for selling LNG, for taking that natural gas and converting it to natural gas and selling it on the market. So that's the opportunity. Can we, can we do anything with it? That's the question. Um, this chart starts off with natural gas as a feedstock. I haven't put any of the, the biofuels on here. You can do that too. But typically, you could take natural gas, and we've talked about this, you could take natural gas, generate electricity, distribute the electricity over the wires, put that in uh, electric vehicles or in plug-in uh, electric vehicles. You could take natural gas, convert it to hydrogen, put it in fuel cell vehicles. Or you could take the natural gas, compress it, stations. John talked a little bit about the cost of either compressed or liquefied stations. And uh, you know, there's some success of that in fleet operations where you have high mileage. It's really difficult to make the case of compressed natural gas in the light duty sector. You're talking about incremental vehicle costs that are at least two to $5,000 at the best. And you know, even if you're half the fuel cost, you're still probably 10 years out on paybacks. It's hard for a customer to want to do that. Liquefied natural gas might make some sense in the heavy duty sector. It does, people are, are using it. There is another pathway that has been investigated a number of times. California has done this over and over. Um, uh, National Research Council has looked at these kind of pathways, but take natural gas, make it into a syngas, go to, go to methanol, then that could be used in the internal combustion engines, or similarly go the methanol to ethanol or to synthetic gasoline. And what we're suggesting here is that we think that there is a viable path to take natural gas to ethanol ethanol into the internal combustion engines, coupled with some electrification of that platform, and that is gonna give you low cost to the consumer in terms of fuel, low cost to the consumer in terms of vehicles, and by the way, meeting the environmental challenges. And I wanna talk a little bit about that. In the 80s, um, California embarked on this program after a, a fairly significant comp comprehensive study to look at all these pathways of, of how you could take natural gas, coal, and any other feedstock and come up with an alternative fuel to petroleum. And methanol was chosen uh, out of that study and went off to look at not only dedicated vehicles where we had high compression ratio uh, to optimize uh, on the octane, as well as heavy duty vehicles. So on the, on the left-hand top corner there is methanol, um, which was used in flexible fuel vehicles. Flexible fuel vehicle technology came out of the California program. And just to say one point on that, California worked really, really hard along with others to pass the FFV credits um, in AMFA in 1988. Part of that was not only to get those credits, because that's what the autos want, Part of the, the other part of it that's never talked about is that ARB developed a fuel trigger that once enough of those vehicles got into the marketplace, that fuel trigger could be pulled, which would require the petroleum companies, the energy suppliers, to supply methanol. Now, that went away because 
the environmental driver basically went away when reformulated gasoline came in and was shown to be as clean as the methanol vehicles. So the driver in California to start with was all environmentally aimed and it was all environmentally aimed at the tailpipe criteria pollutants and not necessarily uh, greenhouse gases, although that was involved. And just, just a point on the right-hand upper corner, we did this not only in light duty, we did it in heavy duty. So the um, shown in that one picture is uh, technology that was from Germany, MAN, methanol buses, and then GM also commercialized a methanol bus. And it was used in LA for a number of years, eventually converted over to ethanol, but that technology is possible. And then there was other manufacturers too. Caterpillar provided us with a um, um, demonstration of their technology and Cummins provided a demonstration of their technology in various heavy duty applications. The idea was not just, it's a barrel of oil concept. If you're gonna displace something, displace not only the light duty sector, but the heavy duty sector too. And the only reason for putting this up is to, to remind you that it's, a lot of this stuff's been done in the past. It can be done in the future too. Albeit technology has changed quite a bit on the vehicle side. On the bottom, light duty, the medium duty, the, the UPS truck there was a CNG uh, vehicle that was built for us. Um, and then on the right hand side, two LNG applications, one with Walmart, and uh, interestingly enough, one with a gasoline supplier. That truck was LNG. FFVs. Um, We've already heard that there's a substantial number of FFEs. Substantial. There's a large number, but compared to the light duty fleet, it's still fairly small. Um, and um, we are also looking at potentially increasing that population with uh, vehicle conversions. Um, the technology is fairly straightforward, especially with the advent and the advancements of computer engine computer controls. So it's relatively um, cost effective to have these cars built in comparison to CNG, which has issues relative to energy storage. You're always trying to minimize the cost of high pressure storage relative to batteries, which have a high cost, or relative to fuel cells combined batteries, which have a high cost. So this is one technology on the vehicle side that is fairly cost effective to implement. Works for ethanol, it can work for methanol. In fact, the current FFV has been shown to work on an M56 mixture, albeit you have to worry about material compatibility and potentially evap emissions. But that, that particular fuel, E85 and M56, the car can't distinguish between the two fuels, they're the same, roughly speaking on combustion characteristics. So let me just talk a little bit about success factors. When I first started in this business, I won't tell you how long ago it's been, I started at the bottom. We were pitching the positive benefits, environmental benefits of alternative fuel. This was a selling point, okay? We knew we needed to have an acceptable case for the producers and retailers, we knew that was the case. We knew that the consumer wanted an adequate infrastructure that's one reason why the FFB was developed, because we were having such a hard time with the dedicated vehicles. 
and people actually leaving their vehicles on the freeway when they got to their half a tank. So there were state employees that go, oh, I have a tank, I can't make it to the airport. I'm, call up, give me another vehicle. <laughs> um, and we know that consumers aren't gonna buy these things without acceptable vehicle attributes. What was missing? The top one, okay? We always thought we could monetize the benefits. Clean air, reduced petroleum consumption, lower greenhouse gases, and that would offset potentially the higher cost of the alternative fuel. I don't think that works very good in my experience. I think number one is if we don't have a value proposition to the consumer, the fuel isn't cheaper, and if the cost per mile integrated over the vehicle isn't cheaper, why would somebody want to do this in the mass market? Agreed. I'll go out and buy a PHEV. Brian will go get super high compression uh, ethanol for his vehicle. But we need a mass market. We need it works for everybody. So what has happened in the past? In the past, on a life cycle cost per mile, we're sort of always chasing gasoline and diesel. We were either not close or we had to make up reasons why the environmental benefits should offset the cost of that fuel. Really the goal is to be cheaper. And how do we get there? So we need lower cost per mile. Vehicle cost also needs to be minimized. That's, I think, fairly obvious to everybody. <coughs> So an FFV has no or very small incremental cost. It's possible, we haven't proven this yet, but it may be possible that you can convert with lower cost. You know, we don't have to put an extra cylinder on the vehicle for storage of compressed natural gas. Maybe all we have to do is make sure that we change the software, but in that change, make sure it meets all the environmental regulations. There might be some cost associated with that. But that seems to be a lot cheaper than some of the other ways. If we can increase conversions and we have the FFE fleet, then maybe we have enough vehicles to interest John's retailers to supply the fuel. But the, the, the fuel's gotta be priced competitively at the pump. And in my, in my view, it's gotta be based on sort of energy mileage, so to speak, here, where it's the energy content and the vehicle efficiency. Some of the data that's come out of, of John here and his studies has shown 50 cents looks like a sweet spot. Eventually, the consumer will probably want more. Um, but if your infrastructure lacks certain things, you're gonna have to account for discounting because of, say, higher conversion cost of the vehicle or lack of that infrastructure where people have to go out of their way to go get the fuel or added fueling time. All that is gonna be a, a decrement to the consumer. So vehicle attributes. Cost, obviously important, drives, it, drives the purchasing decision. Coleman pointed out that the Honda study several years ago, fuel economy was number 56 or 26. I've seen studies where it's gone up a little higher than that. But, you know, I've been at at uh, conferences where people say the paint color was the most important thing. 
performance, vehicle range, storage, interior space, safety. Those are kind of like given. Why would you buy something that is less than what, they, what the autos give you with the baseline fuel? There must be a reason you would do that. There are sellable, sellable attributes like green image, HOV lane access in California, for example, uh, lower life cycle costs. That gets you some market share, but it's not going to get you the mass market, in my opinion. So the fueling infrastructure, I mean, it's got to be easy. It's got to be, people have to be comfortable with using it. The density of the stations is important, and obviously pricing is important. So if you're going to pull up to a station and everybody can put a dispenser in their car, they understand how that works. I do it. My wife does it. My kids who are now grown do it. But, I mean, it works. So if you're going to introduce a new fuel, it better be comparable in terms of ease of use and getting that fuel into the marketplace. So liquid fuels kind of play a premium here in a way, if you think about it. And then you've got to have a reasonable business case throughout the supply chain, right? I mean, everybody's got to play fair in the sandbox here. Everybody's got to make a little bit of money on this all the way through. And then positive environmental impacts. If you're going to have an alternative fuel, it better have equal or better tailpipe emissions. And let me tell you, the day's cars are very, very clean. Tier 3 is going to make them even cleaner. The automotive industry has done an outstanding job here. It's unbelievable. I mean, you talk about emissions, you know, you're talking about 0 .0 numbers. 0 0.02 grams per mile. These are really small numbers. So if you think, of, if you think electric vehicles or hydrogen vehicles are going to give you a huge benefit on uh, criteria pollutants, think again. These are marginal improvements, albeit when you talk about EVs or hydrogen vehicles, zero means zero. They're zero throughout their lifetime. So there are issues regarding uh, cars that will uh, have higher emissions as part of their life, but that's even gotten better through uh, electronics on the cars. And you've got to have equal or better fuel cycle emissions. And what that means all the way through production, distribution, retailing, and use in the vehicle, both for greenhouse gas emissions and for criteria emissions. And then finally, you, you're going to have to say, hey, I'm okay on multimedia effects. So if my, my gasoline or my gasoline with an additive leaks into the ground and you have something like an ether in there like MTBE and it doesn't go away as good as some of the other things do, well, you might have to worry about that. And that might not be good enough to pass regulatory muster. Let me talk a little bit about the, the GHG impact of fuels and vehicle technologies. I know this is a busy chart, so I'm going to walk through it kind of slowly. But what I've tried to do here is show um, gasoline, ethanol, methanol, hydrogen, and electricity on a per vehicle basis. And um, the gasoline, ethanol, and methanol on the upstream part of the fuel cycle analysis are kind of a wash. 
from natural gas, from either petroleum or natural gas, okay? If I put ethanol in there with bio-renewable fuels, I obviously would get a better situation. So on the first one, it's a fleet average, 2005. So about 523 grams of CO2 equivalent per mile. 80% reduction of that is the red line. Okay. So the next one over is the PFI 2005 pass car. Okay, there was an advantage over the fleet, obviously. Then I did a number of factored analysis on various technologies. And you can combine these technologies any way you want, but here was my assumptions. So the first thing is to do direct injection, downsized, um, variable valve timing, um, turbocharging, that's the advanced ICEDI, okay? So that drops it down, yet another one on the gasoline. Next one over is advanced ICE, then you hybridize it, okay? The next one over is you do advanced um, uh, a PHEV, advanced ICE, but you increase the compression ratio here too. And that gets you down close to the 80% reduction that we're talking about from baseline. And you can do that with ethanol too. And you can do that with methanol. The ethanol and methanol show a little bit better because you have slightly different fuel properties in terms of high heat of vaporization, flame speed, those things that you can optimize just a little bit better for. Hydrogen depends whether it's on site with natural gas or it's centralized. Um, batteries, I used um, two. One is the California Marginal, which is natural gas-based uh, electricity plus hydro, plus a little bit of the nuclear we still have. Um, and then the battery, uh, the BEV US average. So the gold standard is over there on the right. So incre uh, incre uh, incremental changes here are these changes that go down the ICE track. So incrementalism that John talked about is this pathway with the ICE. Out of the box thinking takes you over to the right, which is hydrogen electricity, which ultimately you probably have to get there. But there's a cost associated with those technologies. So what are some of the takeaways that I, that I have when I, when I look at this chart? One, higher octane fuels enable high, we've talked about this, high, higher octane fuels enable high efficiency. Um, ethanol, methanol, and any of, the, any of the combinations with gasoline will give us higher octane. Is it E30? Is it M30? Is it M56? Is it E85? What, what the market wants is what it is. Um, you can also do that by refining the hydrocarbons, right? So the refining process could take and put higher octane in that gasoline by re refining what they have, and there's a cost associated with that. That cost is going to be probably higher than the cost that's associated with blending methanol or ethanol into those fuels or any other additive. So my takeaway is that high efficiency ICE coupled with electrification provides a cost-effective pathway to getting to the GHG reductions that we need. And what am I talking about? Turbocharge, direct injection, turbocharge, downside, downspeed, high compression. 
Those are the incremental changes that the auto, the path that the auto companies are on right now, albeit they're having a little hard time with the high octane part. But that's the pathway that they're on. I think you need to um, minimize the future fuel and vehicle cost if this is going to be successful in the marketplace. High octane gasoline is an option, but uh, potentially that's going to be more expensive, especially if you have to do the reforming within the refinery itself. Ethanol and methanol may be the best fueling options, either in low level or mid-level or higher level blends. And then finally, I think you really need to minimize the battery cost. So maybe you don't even need to go to a PHEV. Maybe just a start-stop hybrid technology will get you far enough to meet the CAFE standards. Ultimately, I think you've got to be higher than that in two. But. So let me summarize. One, the natural gas supply in the U.S. opens the opportunity for us to even be considering this. And really, you know, from my takeaway is that there is this possibility that we can get lower cost fuels on an energy basis at the pump. We need to execute to make that happen. The current fleet of FFVs coupled with conversion creates a demand, I think, and we're looking at this now, in three areas, Salt Lake City, Denver, and Western Pennsylvania, um, where you could justify building a production facility, taking natural gas to a liquid fuel. There are possible tailpipe benefits with some of these technologies. They're small, but they're possible. And I think that alcohol fuels will enable uh, more efficient, newer vehicles, lowering the GHG impact at a cost trajectory that's better than anything else that's out there. That said, obviously, there's a lot of work to do to make that happen. So thank you for your attention. It's okay. Go Can for you it. Flip, flip back to your slide about conversion, automobile conversion. I'm, I'm going to put uh, Michael on the spot for a second Conversions. on what automobile conversion. I said uh, it up to, here. There we are. That's that's the one that I wanted. Existing fleet of FFVs and potentially larger population with vehicle conversions there. And what I wanted to do, pass this. If you're interested, Coleman, is to make a commentary on that, or if you have any comments on the on the data and the, and the picture that, that emerges there. Well, Mike, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm gratified to see you've got the other guy's cars up there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, this is conversion for ethanol? This is an FFV conversion, yes. For well, this, for this is an FFV. We would do a conversion to ethanol, yes. To ethanol, okay. Yeah, so you've got to go, and I, I don't claim to know much about those guys' things, but... Um, You've got, you have to look at the fuel pump, the fuel level sender, and uh, the engine, and then you have to supply information to the control system about what kind of ethanol you have. And then you have to create all the, uh, f the, 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 the uh, spark and fuel maps um, in the control system if they don't already exist. And you know, there's, there's two, two classes of conversion. One is where there's, there's already an FFV that exists like the car you have, except 
it's not the car you have. And that's where the, the parts are available, um, ca the calibrations are available, and you just have to have to do that. There aren't actually in the the range of interest from say to 2007 on, there aren't very many of those because we tended to do everything. Um, back you go back further, and we built cars both ways. Um, and then the other thing, other approach is you take a car that's never been flex fuel, and you have the challenge of 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 sourcing the components that that haven't been design, designed for flex fuel. You got to get somebody to design them and and put them in, and then you develop the cals and however you have to do satisfy EPA on this stuff. Right. And, and we, have, we have we've looked at both of those approaches. Yeah, so. To my knowledge, there's only one EPA-approved conversion kit out there. Yes. And that's for what? Flexfuel oh. USA. Yeah, and I think they did Dodge Chargers or something like that. And that one, that one would be uh, applicable to the latter point you were making. Yeah. The form. The, the, I'm Well, I, I ran a study internally back when you know when E85 was wildly fashionable there for a while, and and so I ran a study of okay, let's see if we can market conversion kits um, for the vehicles that you know for for the Silverados that we didn't build flex fuel because we've got all the parts, and when I when the when the the ticker got over a thousand dollars on parts, I stopped, and because nobody's going to do that. Because the problem is you're taking a car we already built. Now you have to disassemble it, throw away the old parts, and put in new parts. And then, then of course, the, the cow, flashing the cowl in is easy. For vehicles that, that we never did this, um, to get a, a cowl that meets EPA's requirements on us, nobody outside of us has the capability of doing that. Uh, the thing, the advantage you have is if EPA's standards for conversion from a small converter are not as onerous as the conversion as their standards would be if we did the conversion ourselves because they give a break to small small operators. I see. Michael, I'll give you the last word on that. Um, no, I think what Coleman said is absolutely right. I mean, if you don't target the conversion cost to you know something on the order of four hundred dollars, you're 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 not going to play in the game. And if you can on some vehicles, and I don't know what the population of those vehicles are, Cohen probably knows better than I do, but on some vehicles it is possible, it is possible to change the, change the calibrations in order to make it operate as a flexible fuel vehicle. And in some cases you're using the OE's calibrations to do that. So um, it would be nice if all vehicles were that easy. I doubt that all vehicles are that easy. Some will be that easy. So you know, part of what we're doing is trying to demonstrate that viability that you could actually do that. <clears throat> that said, we're in the midst of testing right now to prove it to ourselves that you could do it. Yeah, and, and the problem that you have is that you know, there's an economy of scale. You'd, you'd like to do a vehicle, one vehicle where there, where, where there was a million copies on the <coughs> road, right? Okay, well, in the case of the Detroit 3, we, we did all the big big sellers ourselves 
And so the ones we didn't make flex fuel tend to be the smaller volume things. And I've been um, hinting to Mike that there's, there's some other companies based elsewhere that have better, um, where you'll have better yield. Actually, if I can wager. Which will go unnamed. <laughs> Arthur, you know, I looked into this a little bit several years ago because one of the things that I was pushing from the next side was if you wanted to sell more E85, we need more flex fuel vehicles. OEMs were producing them. What about conversion? There was a station in Aspen, Colorado that was one of the hallmarks for one of the best E85 stations in the country. And they had flyers for convert your car to flex fuel to run an E85 to like a buck cheaper than gasoline. And they were getting a lot of people going to aftermarket conversions. So I started asking around, and my understanding was the EPA approval process for a retrofit kit was so onerous that it was like thirty dollars to $40,000 process just to get them to go through the approval process. So those conversions in Aspen were actually aftermarket non-certified. Um, so we started talking to Congress and the administration, how can we streamline that approval process to give the mm -hmm. consumers the opportunity to get their vehicles flex fuel, take advantage of a lower price product on the market. But um, I think the momentum kind of petered out because the companies that were building the conversion kit said we can't afford to go through the approval process and it kind of went away. Well, the legislation that Rand Paul has introduced, the Fuel Choice and Deregulation Act, one of the provisions there is to just do that, to streamline that process mm -hmm. for conversions. <laughs> uh, the other point I would make, and I think, Mike, you mentioned Flex Fuel USA. They did a study a couple of years ago. So when you look at <coughs> ethanol flex fuel vehicles for a specific model of vehicle, you may have one engine configuration that is compatible or is designated as ethanol flex fuel. But there are other engine configurations within that vehicle model that are not sold as ethanol flex fuel. But Flex Fuel USA did a study comparing part numbers, replacement part numbers, and those numbers were all the same, whether it was an ethanol flex fuel or a gasoline-only vehicle. So some of that issue around the parts has already been addressed because uh, the, the global fleet of vehicles has some of those parts already. I, I would, I would comment that, that I don't recall whether it was ethanol flex fuel, but I've, I looked at one of those studies, and they did not pull the data from the General Motors catalog. They pulled the data from somebody else who had their, had the, their part numbers wrong. So it's and important to go, yeah. go to the primary yeah. source. Yeah. And it gets complicated because the autos will change things midstream where you don't even know what's going on. And quite frankly, they probably don't know what they did either going backwards. If you think about, if you've done already the big runner vehicles, what are you doing here? Um, call those twins, the ones that are capable but not flex fuel. What does it take to move those to be flex fuel? And how many of them are there? Okay, I'm, uh, before 2006, I mean, we built flex fuel vehicles yeah. to capture the credit. Right. We could capture 100% of the credit at about 11% of the build. Okay, it varies from company to company and model year to model year. But, so we would build um, some Silverados as flex fuel and some Silverados as not flex fuel. Okay, starting in 2006, we flipped all those vehicles that were, that were available as flex fuel to 100%. So the twins, the easy things for Mike's to, to convert, we did ourselves going forward. And, and if the first couple of years, there were cases where we couldn't get enough parts, so we didn't get them all turned over. But eventually, 
we, we were able to get, for example, all the Silverados as flex fuel. And, and were they uh, sold as flex fuel? Yeah. They, they are also, okay. Yeah. That's how we, you know, we went to 50% in 2012. So we gave away 39% of our production as flex fuel. Okay, because we only got compensated in credits for the first 11%. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so, so then, um, befo before then, you had, you had vehicles that, that came, um, came both ways. And, and those, those are easy to convert. I mean, I don't say they're inexpensive, but they're the all, all the parts exist. The calibrations exist. That's what I did study on. That's where so the, price one. the price, you know, because if you've ever bought par parts at a dealer, it, it gets expensive fast. But, but what so you're saying is the, the easy ones that would be to convert are 10 years old. That's right. Or older. Or older. And expensive, but but they're cheaper than converting the ones that were never designed to be flex fuel, because if the ones that were never designed to be flex fuel, you've got to go to the component suppliers and get them to design you parts. That's not going to happen. That's right. So, uh, Adam Gustafson, Boyden Gray and Associates. So, Coleman, follow-up question: If you if it made sense at that point to give away those flex fuel vehicle components for which you were getting no credit. Is there some circumstance under which it still makes sense to give away those components uh, with a, a long-term view of the future where you want to be able to <coughs> sell vehicles down the road that are built for the, the mid-level alcohol fuels we've been talking about today and high compression engines and you want to be able to encourage the sale of fuel in the marketplace that will run on legacy and high compression engines? That would be a very hard sell. Is that because your profit horizon is too far in the... Well, we, we, we built those vehicles. And, and we, you know, we as the Detroit 3 went to Washington and we pledged we were going to build all the all those vehicles, and we put the vehicles out there, and it, we said we expect the, the infrastructure to appear. This infrastructure hasn't appeared. The renewable fuel standard hasn't been enforced. I, I mean, it, it, there's no point in being just one, one side of the triangle. But if, if y your industry thought that there was some likelihood of the sorts of changes that we've been talking about, I'm, then I'm it not might the make right sense. person to ask that. While I'm holding the microphone, uh, David, you, I think I heard you say that um, met the methanol production cost is half that of ethanol. And if I heard that correctly, what, was that based on corn ethanol or, or some sort of natural gas to liquid uh, cost? Well, it, it's Greg, but the, oh, uh, I'm sorry. The, the spot price for methanol today in the Gulf Coast is actually a little high. It's about $1.10, $1.15 a gallon. And typically the cost to make ethanol is more like two and a quarter for port. Uh, and we're actually expecting um, as we get increased supply, increased domestic production of methanol, uh, the supply and demand will probably force those prices uh, back down even further. I mean, for a number of years, the price of methanol was at 60 cents a gallon. And I used to say that, you know, our selling cost was more than the was, was less than the ethanol tax subsidy at the time. But if you look at methanol production costs from natural gas today, with natural gas where it is around 
275, three, four dollars. I mean, you can make methanol at a, a pretty good profit. Uh, I'd like to follow up on Adam's question. Um, one of our one of our automaker colleagues says, you know, that automakers respond to signals from the market. So, if the RFS is doing whatever it's doing, they do things. Um, Seventy percent of new vehicles sold today are E15 compatible. The manufacturers have responded to EPA's approval of the E15 waiver subsim, so E15 is a legal fuel. A bunch of them are building cars that can use that. So, to your to your question, Adam, I would say to the people here that make things happen policy-wise, the auto guys need a policy so that they'll build flex fuel vehicles. But I would also say, Brian, they need the fuel out there that, will, that those vehicles will use. I, I, I mean, if there's a fuel out there and it's cheaper, don't you think the customer's going to be knocking on the, on the uh, uh, OEM to build those vehicles and to knocking on the distributor to supply those vehicles? I mean, I can think of one example anyway where, um, and this was regulatory driven, but, you know, the worry was when we introduced diesel emission fluid into the infrastructure that nobody would want to supply it and that the infrastructure would not be there to support the 2010 engines that needed this DEF. That was no problem. You go to the retailers and they say, hey, if my customer wants it, they'll get it. But one of the challenges, Mike, is the fact that DEF was basically required or at the end of it work. So that's one of the challenges with, with flex fuel in E85 is there's no requirement that they use it, which is why they're not. You also have in a situation where, yeah, we don't have a lot of stations out there. Our customers aren't asking us, hey, can you put this in? Where is it? Uh, very rare circumstances. You go to the auto dealers. That's another problem. So I was talking to a guy from Poet Ethanol Products. just bought a car a couple months ago. And... It had an E85, and he looked at it, hey, look at that. And the dealer said, oh, you don't worry about this. Put a good gasoline on it. Well, the dealer had no idea he was talking. He had a 30-minute lecture on the benefits of ethanol. <laughs> um, but the fact of the matter is the auto dealers don't have a stake in this, so they're not promoting the flex fuel capability of the vehicles, which is not generating any type of curiosity among the consumer, and it's not resulting in any type of latent demand other than the true believers or the people who have flex fuels who are responding to price. Yeah. And so you're not getting, I've always said, if the CAFE credit goes away, the only way the automakers can continue making flex fuel vehicles is a demonstration of consumer demand, which we have never seen. So. Yeah, I mean, we can ask Coleman this question too, but why did consumers in Brazil knock on, on the OEM's doors asking for <coughs> flexible fuel vehicles? Sometimes ethanol was cheaper, and sometimes gasoline was cheaper, yeah. and, you, and you had to bet one way or another with an expensive purchase. Because yeah. up to that point, you said we offered, you can have a gasoline car, you can have an ethanol car. And when we came out with something that says, you can have both, well, what are you going to pick? And that yeah. Brazilian price is very heavily influenced by the government. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's right. another big deal. Yeah. But to go, to go back to the comment about... about it depends on how the winds are blowing in, in Brazil at the time. But to, to go back and talk about the policy, I mean, you stand back. The federal government approved E15 for use in our vehicles over our vociferous objections. Okay? And they sunset any benefits for, for E85 vehicles. Okay? What are they saying? How would you possibly read that other than don't waste your time on E85 vehicles, build E15 vehicles. 
and, and so why would you expect anything else? Yeah, and I agree with I agree with all of that, uh, and a lot of it to me, and and Greg, this is for you. Uh, a lot of it comes down to the image in the consumer's mind, uh, because the image in the consumer's mind, in my experience with E85, was exactly as you described it, John, just no interest, and no advantage, uh, maybe a little price advantage, but rapid consumption of the fuel because of the lower BTU. And so a one-time purchase in many cases, and that was it in, in my own retail experience. But Greg, coming back to the consumer image, almost everywhere I go, methanol gets a bad rap for historic reasons. And, and it, it is probably mostly misinformation, disinformation, but it's out there. Is the Methanol Institute doing anything or thinking about how to upgrade the image of methanol as you think about the future. Yeah, I think that's, that's one of the, the challenges that our Global Fuel Blending Committee is looking to address. And first, it's on the research side. So, you know, what are those kind of common concerns that we hear about methanol? One is corrosivity. Uh, the automakers will say, oh, methanol is more corrosive than gasoline or ethanol. It's going to damage my vehicle. Well, in China, we're showing that you can use M15 in the existing fleet of passenger cars without any significant problems. But we need to do more research on issues like materials compatibility. We need to know just what the emission performance is of vehicles that were that are properly designed to run on methanol, whether it's spark ignition for the light duty fleet or a dual fuel capability for a heavy duty vehicle. Um, and clearly one of the challenges we do have is on the, the consumer education side. Uh, activities like the uh, Fuel Freedom Foundation, the pump movie, uh, really help us immensely in telling that story. But it's also one of our challenges. We, we talk a lot about what's going on in China. But outside of some of these circles, people don't know that methanol is, such, is so widely used in that country. So we've opened an office in Beijing. Uh, we're working right now with the China Alcohol and Clean Ether Fuels and Automobiles Association to do a joint white paper. So we'll be able to really capture the knowledge that's, that they have in China and be able to share that outside of the country. And then it's work that's being done by Fuel Freedom here in the U.S., uh, Kuji and, and Orbital in Australia, the work that's being done by Door Chemicals and uh, the Israeli government. So we need to, to start capturing these stories and telling it more and getting the word out there that methanol is uh, uh, an effective alternative fuel, uh, it's technically uh, uh, competitive, and that it can economically compete as well. Uh, Joe Cannon from the uh, Fuel Freedom Foundation. I just wanted to put something on the table. We've been talking a lot about price, and just last week uh, I was in San Antonio, Texas, at the headquarters of a company called HEB, which is a grocery store, but they sell lots and lots of gasoline. For the last 10 years, they've been selling E85 at 50 cents to 80 cents a gallon, less than regular unleaded. They have, I uh, um, can't remember how many stores, they have 17 or so stores selling E85. They average 2,000 gallons a day. Their business plans called for, you know, to make their money back at 800 gallons a day. They sell 2,000 gallons a day. They've been doing it for 10 years, regardless of the rent price, 
regardless of the gasoline prices, regardless of corn, ethanol prices, they've managed to do it and, and make a good return. And I guess there's no one here probably that really answered that question, but I don't know why more people don't do it. What they told us, I don't have independent knowledge of this, but they told us that once they started doing it at their stores, Kroger's in Texas uh, started matching them and, 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 and in fact matching them in more stores than HEB did. So we know there are at least two companies out there selling E85 from corn-based ethanol in Texas, which is not a big ethanol state. I think they've got two ethanol producers there in the whole state, uh, and they're making money at it. So why doesn't that happen in, in Des Moines or Denver or Pittsburgh? And there are a lot of stories like that. There's a retailer in San Diego, Pearson Fuels. They've got seven or eight different types of product. And I saw their, their numbers. E85 represents 25% of their stores volume. In San Diego, in the middle of a intersection of highways, um, he told me, I've got guys coming, people coming from 50 miles away because they want the E85. I said, what's your magic? He said, 50 cents. But for every story like that, I can counter with stories. I got a guy in North Carolina put it in in a college town, progressive town, put it in. He's trying to sell it for a buck fifty below gas and he can't sell a gallon of it <laughs> and so you've got it's it's a fickle consumer reaction and so yeah HEB is doing well there are a lot of stations a lot of companies that are doing well but for every station that's doing well I can probably point out a couple that are just have lost their shirts on it um, I know a couple guys who converted their diesel tanks to put in E85 and a year later they went right back to diesel um, so it's it's an uncertain potential and that's i think is one of the things that really causes a lot of retailers to hold back because they hear they they network the convenience retail industry the fuel retail is so big on sharing experiences and we know you have a bad experience at a restaurant how many people are you going to tell you have a good experience how many people are you going to tell so the bad operators have a much louder voice and influential voice over retail decisions than the good ones and so i think that is a big factor in retail conversions e85 John, one of the one of the things that seem would seem to make sense is that you'd really need to know what the distribution of FFEs is in around your station. Yeah. You I mean, mean do do the retailers pay attention to that? No, that's an expensive data set yeah, to yeah. acquire. Yeah. Um, I've looked in acquiring it for NACs to distribute to our members and without distribution rights, like one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Okay. Um, not worth it to us to do that. Um, Sounds like but, a government role. But there are companies <laughs> out there that do a lot of optimizing station locations and they actually go out there and they have access to that data so a lot of companies will hire certain firms that their specialty is what is your market who is in your market what do they want yeah. and so they do have access to that data um, but it, it, it would seem like the autos would want to give you guys that data too if they want to have fuel use in their vehicles there's you know giving data away is an interesting discussion Share. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> wants to monetize their data. So. I'll just speak loudly. Opposing comment to what you said, John. I think Texas probably has more trucks and SUVs yep. per capita than any other state. Um, so many of the ones that GM built were flex fuel. Um, so that's probably the uh, so in, my, in the E85 study that the Fuels Institute released in the fall, um, Growth Energy was kind enough to give us some data they got from Polk on vehicle registrations. They mm -hmm. couldn't give me all of it, but they gave me the top 10 states with flex fuel vehicles. I compared it to the states that have E85 stations. Texas and California had the most flex fuel vehicles in the country. 
yet their station, their vehicle to station density is terrible. Yeah. And you really need, you've got about 5,000 flexible vehicles per retail station. You have about 1,100 gasoline vehicles per retail station. Now, again, the requirement to buy changes what your calculation needs to be. Yeah. But that shows that there is a lot of potential for E85 expansion if we can get the customers to buy into it. And so the other question is, how many of those flexible vehicle customers know it's a flexible vehicle? <laughs> right. It's a problem, yeah. Probably 10%, yeah. maybe. Any other questions to put out there or issue as well? Well, I want to thank all our participants, uh, those who are present and those who are absent, and so on, for doing an absolutely marvelous job. I want to thank uh, Fuel Freedom Foundation for their support for this program and for the research that's been going on that I've been doing here on these kinds of issues and on these kinds of questions. Um, I want to thank uh, also uh, Hudson Institute for giving me a platform in which we can bring these kinds of issues forward uh, and, uh, and make them part of the discussion here in Washington, which is, as we learn, <coughs> an absolutely key and essential player in what's going to take place next in terms of, in terms of the development of, of uh, future fuels and what happens there. Um, and I also want to conclude by bringing you a little bit of news that just about an hour ago, the Senate passed the Corker-Menendez bill um, by a vote of 98 to 1, the one dissenting vote being Tom Cotton. Um, I don't want to get into a debate about Iran's nuclear deal or the other kinds of discussions. That's obviously for another panel and for other groups of experts to be included. But I bring this bit of information up, to a, up here because it's a reminder of what lies in the backdrop for all of our discussion about future fuels, about the role of petroleum gasoline, about the role of this new stage that's coming in the fossil fuel revolution, the natural gas revolution, of which we are going to be key players and in which we are going to be assuming a very important leadership role. And that it reminds us of the place that is, after all, the world's major source for, um, oil, for oil and natural gas, which has the uh, overwhelming reserves for oil in the world, is fast becoming a powder keg. Um, if that's mixing metaphors when we're talking about fuels and, uh, and, and gunpowder. Um, but we are facing an increasingly explosive situation. It reminds us that of what, it, what is at stake here in terms of national security, even global security, in this kind of debate that underlies what these issues in the end may mean in terms of national interest, not only economic issues, but also foreign policy uh, and also our relationship with uh, key places in the world. What happens with future fuels, in other words, may hold key to solving a whole range of problems and issues that go far beyond questions even of gas house emissions or of the growth of American economy as important and significant issues as those may be. Thank you for sticking with us. It's been an absolutely, I've had an absolutely marvelous time here. I've learned a lot and I hope the rest of you as well. Uh, and 
this session is adjourned.